0: Hello everyone, you are listening to CCG Global Dialogue Podcast with Dr. Henry Wang Yao, founder and president
1: of the Center for China and Globalization.
2: Good, good evening and uh, good, good, good morning. Welcome to CCG China and the World Dialogue Series, Understanding In Equality in a Globalized World, Lessons for the 21st Century. CCG dialogue, a serious dialogue we have conducted for the last two months. We have already had a, a series of uh, well, meaningful, and uh, stimulating discussions with global opinion leaders and uh, well-known scholars, and uh, also uh, former politicians as well. So so we already had uh, quite a number of them. Uh, we just had the one with uh, uh, Martin Wolf, the FT chief commentator yesterday. And today we are very, uh, uh, privilege to have uh, uh, both uh, well-known two world-renowned economists from Princeton University, also a famous husband-wife team, (laughs) congratulations, So Angus Deaton, who is the Nobel Economic Laureate, uh, and also Professor Anne Case, a prominent economist on her own, right, and co-author of The Death of Desperate. So good morning, Dayton, and... Professor Dayton, and also good morning, uh, Professor Case. Thank you for joining us this early hour in uh, Princeton. I'd like to introduce first uh, uh, Professor uh, Sir Angus Deaton. He's a senior scholar and a dual Eisenhower Professor at Economics and International Affairs, Ambrose at uh, Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs of Economics Department at Princeton University. His main current research area are in the poverty, inequality, health, well-being, economic development, and randomized controlled trials. So very knowledgeable and very well-known economics. He holds both American and British citizenship, a global citizen, and also he has taught both at the US, UK, and many other universities. He was the president of the American Economic Association in, 20, in 2009, and also he, he's a member and was a member of many well-known academic associations. So we're very pleased to have uh, uh, Sir Angus Deaton uh, join us uh, uh, today. Also, we're very uh, happy to have a Professor Anne Case, is the Ex-Lambda 1886 Professor of Economics and Public Affairs, emeritus at Princeton University, where she continues to teach in the School of Public and International Affairs, a, a very well-known uh, school. Dr. Case has written extensively on health over life course. She has been awarded the, the Kenneth Arrow Prize in Health Economics from International Health Economic Association for her work on the links between economic status and health status in childhood, and, and, and also the, got the uh, couser Rini Prize from the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science for her research on midlife mobility and also mortality. Dr. Case currently serves on the Committee of National Statistics, also very well-known uh, organization, uh, and uh, also the discussion today, we, we, we are very fortunate to have both of you and we hope that we have a, a, a lot of interesting discussion. We actually carry this live and we have many audience watching us online in China and other parts of the world. So today's discussion is also joined by my colleague, Dr. David Blair, vice president and senior economist at CCG. Dr. Blair specializes in the banking and finance Macroeconomics, entrepreneurship, and health care. He has a PhD in economics from UCLA and was a uh, McCarthy Postdoctoral Fellow at Harvard University Center for Science and International Affairs. So, for the 17 years, he was the professor and also the economics uh, chair of the uh, economic department at Eisenhower School of the National Defense University in Washington, D.C. Uh, so, Baby has actually already uh, been a visiting scholar at uh, City Securities and also a senior columns of China Daily uh, before he joined CCG uh, uh, last year. So, so we're very pleased to have all of you. Uh, so, uh, t- so today we are actually uh, uh, what I what I hold in my hand is actually the uh, the, the, the the new book, uh, Death of a Despair, uh, uh, Despair uh, basically a book. Uh, that, uh, uh, and also The Future of a Capitalism, a book co-authored by Professor Case and Professor Ann deaton published last year. So this is really a very interesting book. I was really struck by the, uh, the, the book that uh, uh, you mentioned uh, in, the, in the book, Life expectancy has uh, across the world has been constantly rising for almost a century, but, uh, but uh, actually, uh, uh, is a be- become a hallmark actually for the highly developed nations. But, but the income, the, uh, the, uh, here comes the strange trend that uh, it's also coming down. So, but, but before we get into that, also I also want to have a, a Professor uh, Dayton and also Professor Case to, to say a few words at the beginning, you know, to maybe introduce the, the book you, you just published last year to our Chinese audience. So, uh, uh, Professor Dayton, maybe, or Professor Case for both
3: of you, yes. Yeah, you know, when, when we first started this work, which was what, in the summer of 2014. 2014, so seven years ago now, we noticed this um, reversal where mortality in midlife, um, you know, people in their 40s and 50s, which had been declining for more than a century, a bit rocky sometimes, but a pretty steady decline had started turning around. So, you know, and, and instead of continuing to go down from the mid nineties until when we were writing it had started to rise. And so this is something you really don't expect to see at all. We didn't know at the time that overall life expectancy was falling. But,
1: but what was happening was only happening in the U.S. So when we compared what was happening In the U.S. to other wealthy countries, other English-speaking countries, their mortality rates continued to fall. So progress was continuing elsewhere, but in the U.S. in one particular group among whites, which are the most privileged group in the U.S., mortality rates had started to rise. And this came as a surprise to us and it came as a surprise to all of the other people that we showed this to, we thought, Everyone must know this. Who works in this area, but it was a shock. So that was the beginning, and we started to dig to try to find out what is going on here. Why did progress stop? Not just for a year, but over over two decades.
3: Right. It was such a shock at the time. We had a lot of trouble getting the paper published. (laughs) Yeah. And of course, when eventually we did get it published, the the words just a tsunami of interest in it. Um, I like to tell the story that I got the Nobel Prize in October of 2015 and there's a huge amount of publicity (laughs) that comes with that, um, as I'm sure you know. But this paper then came out two weeks later and the publicity around this paper was just huge compared even with what had happened with the Nobel Prize. So we knew we really put our finger on a a nerve and the uh, people were very excited um, about this.
2: Yeah, no, I, this is a fascinating book, actually, where, you know, when we read it, I, I think that uh, you have done a very uh, substantial analysis and always all the all the, all the data and, and, and discovery, actually. I mean, you you were basically, uh, it's uh, the life expectancy in the wealthiest countries in the world is uh, fell for the first time in a decade. And, uh, Life expectancy, you uh, know, U.S. fell again in 2016, and for the third time in a row in 2017. So, so, uh, so maybe, uh, you know, I mean, now we're also <laughs> hit by this pandemic uh, going on around the world. So, so, uh, so, so I think U.S. of course is one of the, you know, wealthiest countries uh, achieved a, a high expect life expectancy, uh, but. Lessons for for other countries to learn for China for for the world. So what what we can learn from that, you know, because China is actually getting a bit high life expectancy now, and uh, uh, we just have the population uh, census uh, uh, report released about two days ago, and uh, uh, so so China is is having a, a, a improved life expectancy, but we should be of careful of. of uh, uh, you know, to, to, to learn the lessons uh, for, for the for from other countries as well. Maybe you could uh, share some light on that as well.
3: Well, I think the um, you know we this is not a very helpful thing, but one of the things to say is, is to make sure that what happened, some of the things that happened in the United States um, did, do not happen um, elsewhere. So that's one of the lessons. It doesn't tell you in detail. I mean, I've talked about this in China before, but you know, we draw an analogy in the book with what happened in China in the 19th century, um, when you know, opium dealers um, from Britain sort of forced their way into selling opium um, to the Chinese people, very much against um, local wishes, and to some extent, there's a parallel. With what happened in the United States, the very powerful pharmaceutical companies and pharmaceutical distributors distributed enormous amounts of opiates, opioids, um, essentially legalized heroin, um, which caused terrific trouble in the United States with many people dying.
1: So the three, three causes of death that were rising that, that caused mortality to turn the wrong way in the U.S. were suicide, drug overdose, and alcoholic liver disease. So we, as a shorthand, started to call those deaths of despair. And that was really just a shorthand for those three causes of death. But in those three causes of death, what we saw was a great deal of despair that people don't kill themselves with drugs or alcohol or a gun unless something is going very badly wrong in their lives. So we, we, in the book, what we did was first document that this was indeed happening throughout the US, but only for people who were not well educated, only for people who did not have a four year college degree. And so from there we turn to economics to ask the question, what is it that's happened in the U.S. that has happened only to people without a four-year college degree that might be um, um, a powerful enough force that people would start killing themselves in very large numbers.
3: And a very important part of that story throughout was that it wasn't happening in other rich countries around the world or if it was happening, and it is happening a little in Britain, um, Canada, and and Ireland, it's not happening to anything like the same scale as is happening in the United States, which means that stories about globalization or technical change, um, which many people tend to blame, um, you can't really tell that story without saying, why is globalization and technical change having such different effects? in Germany and
0: Britain than it's having in the United States. Mm-hmm. Could, I, could I ask you to delve a little bit deeper into the sort of the deep causes? I was very struck by your statement a minute ago that you want other countries to be able to draw on the lessons of uh, uh, what the US suffered and not, not repeat the same mistakes. I, I never thought I'd, I'd be looking back on the 1970s as possibly a, a kind of a golden age, but- yeah. At that time, wage, real median real wages were going up, which they haven't been since 1979. Uh, that, do you think? W- can you discuss a bit more what you think, in either policy changes, or environmental changes, or uh, social changes that you were think were, were driving it? Was it a change in society? Was it? Uh, failure to enforce anti-monopoly laws, changes in the financial system. There are all sorts of hypotheses. And I'd just like you to elaborate on what you think the, the major causes were. Well,
3: we can push these back and forward between us, but almost all of the above. I mean, you know, all, a lot of bad things are happening. The question really is to establish uh, you know, the right, you know, what caused what <laughs> through this sort of change. So there's been a lot of social disintegration, you know, which Bob Putnam famously wrote about it in terms of Bowling Alone and right. you know, how um, you know, he, he, he wrote to us and said he thought the title of our book was the best title he'd seen in many, many years. And he said, you're talking to the guy who wrote Bowling Alone, right? Mm-hmm. But our, our book is very sympathetic with, is, is very parallel to what Bob was writing. But we really think of the, uh, you know, I mean, Anne should talk about some of the other things that are happening, the morbidity, the pain, all these other things, the lack of marriage, church going and so on. But we tend to push it back to the labor market.
1: So the high watermark for blue collar wages in the U.S. was 1972. Mm -hmm. Um, And since then, uh, wages for people without a college degree have been falling for men first, for women with a lag, but they've been falling now for a couple of decades as well.
3: They rise in booms, and you know, so it's not like it's been continuous fall. It's just that you get this ratchet effect that they rise a bit in the boom and then they fall and they never get back to where they were before. Nice. So you know, in the Trump boom, which many people pushed as being you know the best labor market that has been in a century. <laughs> Real wages for people without a four-year college degree were lower than at any date in the nineteen eighties.
1: So, so part of that is certainly that uh, there was globalization, there was automation; those things were happening, and certainly would have uh, made low uh, blue-collar workers more vulnerable. So, part of it is a policy decision about whether or not the workers who were affected were going to be retrained, whether or not uh, the the pie getting bigger through globalization was going to be distributed to everyone or was going to be just distributed among the people at the top. So part of that is policy um, in terms of uh, what was going on. But the other part that's different about the US is the way that we finance our healthcare system And that plays an important role in the story in a way that's kind of happening behind the curtain. Because because we tie uh, health insurance to employers in the U.S., which is highly unusual, uh, if you combine that with the fact that the healthcare industry got larger and larger and more and more expensive, What that meant was that employers had to pay a larger and larger premium to hire any worker, including those blue collar workers. So that came out of blue collar wages. So as healthcare went uh, from being what it was, which was not much of GDP back in, let's say 1960, to being $1.05 by the time we get to 2020, Um, What that meant was that blue-collar wages fell as more money was spent on their health care. And
3: also the jobs went with it. So, you know, if you're an employer and you have to pay $20,000 a year um, to hire, you know, a janitor um, or a cleaner, it's meant that very, very few large firms in America have any cleaning staff the mail room is gone, the security staff, the food services workers, the drivers, um, they're all contract, not all, but nearly all are contracted out. And this is not contracted out to China or India. I mean, we're talking about contracting out the local um, firms that supply labor.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I was struck by a number that uh, the, the share of GDP going to capital and labor back when I was in graduate school 30 or 40 years ago, that was considered fixed. You know, you can just take it as fixed and run with it, but it's been declining. I mean, the labor share has been declining, what is it, 7 or 8% over the last 30, 40 years in the US, which is a big change. Can, can you talk about what's going on there? Well, you know,
3: this is a very hot area in labor economics and in study firms, and there's no agreement as to exactly what those forces are. So this is a permanent in economic analysis um, right now. Um, and it's not clear that the same thing is happening elsewhere. I mean, I'm working with a group in London, and we've spent a lot of time looking at the British labor share. And some people think it's fallen in the same way, other people think it has not fallen as much. Yeah. But one of the one of the themes in this work. And I don't really want to tell you the answer because I don't think we know is that power plays a much bigger role than economists used to think it did. Market, Market power plays a lot more. So there's a lot of wondering about whether there's a lot more monopsony, you know, with firms having power over the workers, um, more monopoly firms having power over their product prices. Um, And the decline in unions and, you know, the decline in unions has happened pretty much everywhere, but it's happened very fast in the United States. So there's almost no private sector unions left.
0: I'm struck by how much more competitive many market sectors are in China than in the United States. I just bought a car and it's a extremely highly competitive market sector, market for cars here. And the price is maybe two thirds of the, Price of an equivalent car in the U.S.
1: So, so um, car dealers are very well protected in the U.S. Right. So there are regulations um, that that help protect that those um, sellers. Uh, which is, it's not just cars. There are there are so many areas where um, uh, corporations and and um, uh, heads of uh, groups have gone to Washington and gotten protection. So, if you are working, uh, you know, within a protected sector, you do very well. But that means that the people who aren't protected are paying the price for that.
3: And we think that, not us, but many other scholars too, have begun to think of the bachelor's degree as the ticket into sort of a protected sector um and you don't face competition but just to elaborate on something you just said which is very important um our our friend Thomas Philippon has written a book about price trends in Britain compared with price trends even in the EU and you know he was someone who came from France to the US as a graduate student and he was struck with cell phones exactly what you just said about cars they were much better quality than they were in France and they were much cheaper and now, you know, in 2020, they're not as good as in France and they're much more expensive. And that's true for a whole range of goods. And again, this is tending to feed this idea that American markets are just not as competitive as they are in Europe,
0: uh, let alone in China. Uh, so the of, lesson for Chinese oh, regulators. They're they're you know, they're they're
2: yeah, I'd like to. Uh, to. To. to I, I think we have a very, started a very, <laughs> a very good uh, topic on, on these issues. I think the uh, what is going on at uh, uh, in, in, in lessons learned from U.S. But but we had a very good uh, the open discussion now. I mean, you talk about the uh, the all those factors, you know, education, uh, healthcare, and uh, uh, you know, uh, robotics, uh, globalization. So we are actually now having this uh, pandemic and uh, we're going to, probably going to see the situation deteriorate further as, as time goes on that, uh, with, with all the factors multiply and uh, so so the question I want to raise is that now uh, we're we are now in this uh, 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 you know globalized world and uh, and uh, and death of deaths of, uh, of desperate <laughs> is uh, uh, and also the future of, a go- of capitalism, which is uh, the book uh, that uh, you had many interesting things, you know, education, you know, people who had a four-year education have a better uh, uh, income level, and also the uh, uh, country spending on the, on the healthcare, how they run the, uh, the healthcare system, and uh, also the, uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, you know, go- globalization, how, how, how the jobs, technology go in play, uh, all those factors is really fascinating. I mean, I, I, I think that is really also stimulating China as well. I think that is exactly what China probably is doing as well. Uh, the latest uh, uh, population consensus the data that China now has 280 million uh, among its population, 280 million people among its population have a college degree or currently in a college. Mm-hmm. So which means this is going to really help the, uh, the with future of them. So that probably one of the lessons we learned from your book as well. Second, the health. The health is really, uh, uh, is really striking that uh, US actually spent, according to the number you have, is almost uh, uh, 20% GDP on the health system. Whereas China, it's about five or 6%. But China's already almost have uh, 1.3 billion people and some kind of medical coverage. And uh, and uh, also that uh, uh, life expectancy, China is probably only two or three years shortage of, uh, of U.S. now, and it's quickly catching up. Uh, so, and also China was this year, you know, they, they announced that China has lifted eight hundred million people out of extreme poverty. And also the, this, the the Chinese family values, and uh, you know, there's there's a companion, a family encouragement, whereas they can those kind of a. Uh, uh, suicide, or, or maybe uh, this, 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 you know, <laughs> depressed, whatever. So, so what do you think about, you know, what what China has, has done, and then what what can be, uh, uh, you know, prevented in the future that not going to repeat some of the lessons maybe we are having, or, or maybe what we'll has some, you know, how how we can really improve that. Uh, probably you are the authorities on that, and like to hear also. Um,
1: so there are several things to pick up on here. I mean, it's a really fascinating set of issues. Just to start with education. Um, other countries don't seem to have this strict divide between ha- you have a college degree or you don't. And if you have a college degree, you're protected and your life is going well. Whereas if you don't have a college degree, you it's very hard to get married. Um it's very hard to um, have a community life that's meaningful. In other countries, that doesn't—that's not happening. So it seems like that is something that's in some way special to the U.S. And it may be that in in other countries, uh, there's not stigma attached to having uh, jobs that are meaningful jobs uh, that you need skills for, but you don't need a college degree for. So that's that's one thing. I don't know if you want to. Well, this something. education
3: thing is very hard, and there's a lot of controversy about it too. But you know what you were saying about the progress that China has made in educating people. that has got to be good. You know, we believe in education. You know, we're college professors. How could we not believe in education? Both of us grew up in pretty humble backgrounds, and for us, the educational system was our escape. You know, it was what allowed us um, to move into success and you know the things we've done in our lives so we're not going to say anything bad about education um, and you know education gives people skills or allows latent skills to be expressed and that's good for them and it's good for the country and it's good for everybody so that's a terrific thing but there's another role of education which seems to be as a marker of social status
0: mm-hmm.
3: and having a BA, in America it seems to increasingly have become um, what the philosopher Michael Sandel has called the you know, key to respect, a key social to esteem. Uh, a social esteem, the key to a good job. And that has a big downside as well as an uh, uh, upside. So you know, we're not gonna badmouth education, but it's more the role that this BA degree has come to play in the United States. Um, so that I think
2: has been problematic. There's, and yeah.
1: then you, go
2: ahead. Sorry, yeah, yeah, on the piece.
1: I was going to say also to pick us up on something else that you mentioned, which was on, on values or family values. Um, uh, in America, uh, among the conservatives, they like to point to the erosion of family values that people are no longer industrious and that people are no longer um, um, sort of like have a moral compass that says, we, we live in a family and we take care of our family. Instead, what we have are people cohabiting, they break up, they, they may have had a child in their first cohabitation, but then they have a new cohabitation, they have another child, and their home life is just very, very fragile. But we we kind of argue in the book that it's much easier to uh, be virtuous if you have a good job. If you have a job where you have prospects, where there's on the job training, where you feel like you have a future, um, it's much easier to kind of support uh, a lifestyle that's stable if you, feel that you have status, meaning in your work, and you know that that work is uh, going to lead you to a good life.
3: There's a sort of old Marxist belief that um, social relations (laughs) depend on the means of production. (laughs) And that seems to be what's happening here. I mean, we see the disintegration of these, um, you know, these times where people used to have good Working class people color our jobs um, sure. for working class people as being behind this social disintegration.
2: How would you yes? S- I I, I you might get to raise uh, uh, another question before I g- get back to David. Okay. Is that uh, uh, one of the things you, you mentioned in this book about uh, inequality, and you know, also is the, the one of the things that we notice uh, has been widely uh, happening around the world. I mean, as globalization deepens, uh, we, we see the inequality. Uh, for example, we we notice that you know, for example, the the one percent of the U.S. Uh, uh, most uh, <laughs> elite or or, or or people in the in the, in the top top bracket, uh, that the air wealth is almost equal to forty two forty five percent of the mass population, and and that actually in, in many developed countries have the same trend on that, and whereas also the um, the company is, is going global, but then they are not probably benefiting exactly. Uh, the home country or the host country of that. And that, that's, that's where, for example, NAFTA was blamed for hovering out the Midwest and <laughs> not benefiting uh, US on, on, on that. So, so and, and now China probably uh, become uh, another reason to, 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 to bash for as well, because, uh, uh, because uh, if, if the multinationals, the Fortune 500 is not really, uh, uh, you know, having put, put their uh, wealth offshore somewhere, is, you know, that is the, 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 the politics going on. I, I was talking to, uh, you know, Martin Wolf. He was saying uh, capitalism is global, but democracy is local. So if the, if the population locally is not happy, then the actually, politician needs to find a, a, a scapegoat for that. And, and China easily to become a, a scapegoat very often. So so what do you think about this inequality issue and uh, where where the gap is getting wider and wider in the last uh, several, decades, and also even during the pandemic, I mean, we see the, the 1% is getting even wealthier. Uh, uh, stock market is uh, all-time high now. So uh, how do you explain that? Explain that and uh, and uh, what, what are the true challenges for a contemporary world?
3: Yeah, so I think you have to be careful here to separate different kinds of inequality, right? So there's inequality in income, which is what perhaps we first think about. It. And the top 1% is mostly about inequality and income. And then what you were talking about at the end there, which I think is becoming increasingly important and some politicians in the United States like Elizabeth Warren, for instance, have been focusing much more on wealth inequality than on income inequality. And as you say, there's been this enormous explosion of wealth inequality during the pandemic, much more so in the United States than in Europe, for example, because the U.S. stock market has gone up so much and largely because the big tech companies are here in the U.S. and it's their enormous success during the pandemic um, which has driven up those stock market um, values. But there's also the inequality we write about in our book which is the inequality of respect Mm -hmm. and of which in the U.S. seems to come with education And to us, that's the deepest problem because the people, these um, people without a VA, you know, have been sort of left behind. They're not politically represented. And what you say is exactly right. Our colleague Bob Cahane used to say that the major force today in international relations is what is happening within countries. That's exactly like what Martin Wolf said about democracy is local and globalization is global. Well, the threats to globalization today are coming from within countries, not from between countries. And we think it's this, um, if you like, disrespect of the separation or leaving these people behind who favor populist solutions that are the real threat to globalization. I mean, you know, if you get another decade of, of Mr. Trump, um, then it's not clear how much should be left of globalization at the end of that.
1: I mean, just to go back to what you said about NAFTA, um, speaking to some of the economists who were in the Clinton administration, when NAFTA was passed, they knew that jobs would be lost in the U.S. But the, what they thought was that, well, this is a good time for the U.S. to upskill. And so that those jobs would be lost, but those workers would be better skilled, they would retrain them, and then that would lift, the, lift everyone. But what happened was NAFTA passed, the jobs were lost, but the upskilling never took place. So those people were sort of thrown out into the wilderness to fend for themselves. And that's going to foment um, a lot of uh, a, a lot of anger over a period of time when people feel like they're not participating, they're not, when the rest of what they see as being know, uh, a wealth increasing among some groups, and they're not getting any part of that increase in the size of the pie. So, mm-hmm. uh, and that's a failure also of democracy in the U.S.
2: Um, yeah, yeah, that, that's a good point. And also, uh, uh, the Professor Deaton, that uh, you, you mentioned about education, of course, one of the probably f- uh, fundamental uh, the factors that uh, dividing the uh, uh, the, the, the social status as well. But, 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 but also, uh, the, you know, we see the statistic, statistics as well at Princeton Yale, for example, more students coming from family in the top 1% uh, income than from the bottom 15%. Uh, Two thirds of the student in Ivy League schools comes from family of top 20%. And also actually in the US, the chances of student from household with, with more than 200,000 in income scoring above 14,000 SAT college admission test is only five, you know, so uh, is, uh, is uh, so, so for those of family uh, that makes less than 200,000, is only one in 50. So uh, uh, one in five and one in 50, you, you see the income gap uh, to make those differences. So, so even for the education, does that also related to the, uh, uh, the wealth that is not, uh, inequality inequality is, is not there, the gap is big. Uh, would that be a problem uh, for for us to continue, or the Western countries in general, probably?
3: Yeah, but you know, Princeton and Yale are not the whole of the university sector, apart from Yale. Okay. Else. And it's not entirely clear that you get a huge advantage in going. I mean, I'm sure you get some, and parents think that it's certainly extremely competitive. And it's certainly true that you know we know better, best at Princeton, but Princeton has made huge efforts to bring low income and minority kids um, to Princeton, and it very much changed the composition um, over the last um, 30 or 40 years. So I think we defend that record a little bit, but it's really hard. And for instance, I think they've probably been more successful at um, bringing minority students than they have of the children of low, of working class whites, (laughs) for example, that don't but you know there are many colleges you know we spend our summers or a month in the summer in, in montana and you know the state university um at bozeman for instance anyone who wants to walk in can get in so you don't have to take exams and be let in and you know anyone can go and try and of course they have to pay fees and that's a separate problem so you know that's built up some debt from that But
2: I think the U.S. is still very strong in those, uh, you know, uh, among the 100 top university, U.S. has half of that and uh, attract talents around the world, you know, make a very innovative uh, country. I think that probably is the core uh, uh, strength that U.S. has. And I think China is also learning that. Of course, uh, China uh, has over 3,000 universities of uh, uh, currently on campus, 35 million uh, students on campus. Total population, 218 million uh, colleges or colleges uh, in campus. And also 9 to 5, uh, not, no, the 0 to 9 grade. Uh, 98% of, this, of the student at, at the age of that is also enrolling uh, as well. So, uh, so I think that uh, education probably uh, is really, uh, according to your, your study, is really one of the key factors that China is doing, paying a lot of attention to that. Uh, perhaps I would like to have David to, to comment on that as well. You've been living in China since 2016. I mean, and also you've been, you've been, uh, you've been contacted, uh, you've been, you know, you studied a lot of, uh, of, the, of the wages of development and, uh, you know, all those uh, 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 labor economics and, uh, and uh, financing. And so maybe what's your take on that on the, compared with the country you, you come from, U.S., and also the country you already lived in for the last uh, six six seven years already, yeah. Well,
0: I'll speculate about it for a minute. Uh, there's there's one term that I hear in Chinese that's a term that they use for taxi drivers or for anybody that operates equipment or any sort of skilled uh, job, and it's shifu. And it, it basically is the way people show respect to a, a manual worker. And a lot of these people are much poorer than typical people at equivalent jobs in the U.S., but... I don't think they feel the pressure and the despair. Although, you know, so, some of the some of the delivery guys—they're usually young guys from the countryside—they work extremely hard, very long days, and they may be, be under a lot of pressure from their employers to to do things rapidly. But even people working in the parks and stuff—I I don't feel like they think they're looked down upon. Where I, I think American. Working class people now think they're just flat out looked down upon, and that, uh, naturally that stokes anger and uh, sort of a feeling of hopelessness. Uh, do you think that's a right interpretation of what's what's going uh, on? Uh,
1: yes, absolutely.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and and that that's also something that separates the U.S. from, say, Europe, right? So if you go and travel in Europe, there's a there's a lot of respect paid for people who do manual work um, that we don't see in the U.S.
3: But so. it's also true that um, some of it's common with with Britain too. So one thing that many people have written about, and I think it's very important, is you know people who used to work for Bethlehem Steel in Baltimore, for instance. Mm-hmm. There's a new book, called Fulfillment, about Amazon, and are now working in Amazon warehouses. You know, where my grandfather died in a mine, in a mining accident in Yorkshire, where, in the village where my father grew up, that mine is no longer there. The unions are no longer there. The mm-hmm. solid rock hard um, labor people who used to vote for the labor party are not there. They're voting conservative, and there's an Amazon warehouse on the site where the mine was, all mm-hmm. right? Now, those jobs, many people have written how badly how hard it is to work in an Amazon warehouse or so-called fulfillment center. But they're not dangerous like working in the mine, and they're not dangerous like working in the steel was. And they're relatively well paid. I mean, Amazon is paying something like $15 an hour in the US. But there is a sort of sense of despair that this is meaningless work that's working on a clock. And you know, these are more enter- um, what's the word? Um, anyway, they're, they're more sociological accounts or individual accounts of people who've lived these lives and written by them. And there's a feeling that the meaning of life, you know, is not what it was in those times. And there's been a lot of loss of society. I mean, in the Yorkshire mining times, there were these famous brass bands and, you know, there were famous um, soccer clubs and you know, there was a social life built around those jobs, dangerous and dirty though they were. And there's no similar social life built around the Amazon warehouse. So I think that is happening pretty much,
0: you know, throughout that's, Western. That's Europe. very much the story that Bob Putnam told for his hometown in uh, in yes. Ohio, too. One thing that worries me is the is the next generation. Once one generation loses their job, then the the children don't get well cared for often they, or they have psychological problems when they're young. So h- how do we solve this problem for the next generation? Do, do you have any thoughts on that?
1: That is that is a really good worry to have because I think it, we are really worried about that as well. That if, if you, you've grown up and your mother is addicted to drugs or your father committed suicide or um, you're not in a stable home life, also, the school that you attend um, isn't as good as the school would have been a generation ago because the industry pulled out, the tax base imploded, and the school is not well funded. Right? So your the options for you for the future look pretty grim. So what do we do about this? Partly, I think we we and this is a heavy lift, but we need to think about changing the educational system, which right now in America is laser focused on the kids who are going to go to college. Mm. So if you're going to high school, but you're not college bound, uh, you're sort of on your own. So we need to think about ways in which um, kids who are not going to go to university are going to get a skill set that's going to put them on a good career track where they could become skilled plumbers or electricians or all of the different um, computer needs that we, we will have. And we need to be thinking about how we make that happen, but that's, that's going to be really difficult. And there's
3: actually it. a lot of interest in that on both the right and the left in, in the US on vocational education, of turning your system into something more like what you have in Germany um, and so on. So, and also to come back to our, the drum we like to beat, <laughs> you know, a lot of these local parties are paying enormous sums of money for healthcare and it's making it very hard for them to fund um,
0: local schools, local education, local universities. Just a point on China. There's a lot of interest around China into looking at the, uh, the German apprenticeship system but I, I still think there's too much attention on, especially among parents and, and being sure their children are not you know, forcing them to go to school 15 hours a day. And uh, that's a slight exaggeration and, and getting on the sort of the Beida, Tsinghua, Peking University, Tsinghua track is very much Many parents are very much stressed. I
2: found, you know, I found actually, as as Professor Deaton and Professor Case just said, you know, the uh, the uh, the America have this phenomenon that uh, uh, people, you know, if there's high school, they're not pursuing university, and they maybe may have, they don't have a, a very bright future. And, and same mentality actually is uh, is happening in China as well. And uh, and also people did not even bother to go to the uh, you know vocational school or. or or other specialized college, because everybody wants to go to university. So that is not really a, a healthy thing. Uh, but, but but on the other hand, Chin, Chinese people do work very hard. I mean, uh, you, you, there's talk about uh, 724 or, or 966, you know, nine hours day, six there's a week or something. So 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 what what I think is that uh, uh, I also want to get uh, our, our, our two uh, uh, distinguished scholars' advice is that. Uh, uh, you know, when one, when, when one—the uh, this kind of a, a culture issue. How does that play in a, in a, in a inequality or a country development, or the, or the or the or the prosperity? For example, I was uh, invited to uh, to bid farewell for the uh, uh, former uh, U.S. ambassador in China, and uh, and, uh, and he said actually uh, 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 summarized what his impression on China is that okay, uh, the China these people are working very hard, diligent people. They have uh, uh, attached great importance on education. And also, they have a great, uh, you know, uh, have a, a stick to the family values as well. Uh, you know, there's a tremendous family value and, uh, uh, you know, attach great importance to the family, basically, that's what he's saying. So, uh, even that, I mean, the family now, uh, according to the population consensus, uh, you know, 10 years ago, there's about four person in their family. Now it's about three something. <laughs> so, China is, uh, is also changing on that as well. So, so what, I'm, what I'm asking is that what the, the culture, uh, you know, China has a 5,000 years history. It is always, uh, uh, you know, the, that uh, trying to be neutral and uh, uh, inclusive. And, and would that place something in the country development as well, or inequality in issues? Well, China actually there's a saying in China. You know, they don't they don't mind that uh, there's not enough, but they don't mind they they mind very much if not redistribute really fairly. So. So we have this redistributing upward, in using your term, <laughs> not downward, not, not trickling down, uh, the wealth of a Western country, for example. So China is trying to avoid that. You know, for example, uh, you know, having these uh, massive, gigantic uh, four decades of lifting uh, 800 million people out of poverty, you know, uh, 10 years ahead of uh, SDG 2030 Agenda of UN, number one priority that uh, cutting 70% of uh, global po- poverty, uh, uh, just by China alone. So, so, what do you think about this culture and, and those hi- historical factors and, and cultural factors?
3: Well, they, you might, I believe in these cultural factors. You know, I, I grew up in Scotland. In Scotland, you would hear many of the same things you just said about China. You know, give enormous respect um, for education. Um, very, very strong uh, family ties. Actually yesterday, or maybe the day before, I was talking to a group in the British Parliament and one of the lords there who was Scotsman had said, you know, that what worried them most about Scotland today was these family values that were so strong in his day um, seemed to be weakening um, there. But you know, just come back to my half-joking comment about Marxism, <laughs> you know, culture changes with the conditions of production. <laughs> And you know, the, the, those Scottish families were thriving within a system where there were jobs. Um, and you know, we we have a friend, actually a brother-in-law, who said that when he decided to go to college in the 70s 1972,
1: 1972,
3: his friends in New York, a relatively poor area of New York, his parents were Italian immigrants, um, and said, Why are you going to college? That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. Um, You know, you're gonna use your diploma to pay the bills and so on. Now in Scotland, that wasn't the case. People really wanted to go to college. So, but these things change. And in these times in America where there were good jobs, where there were factories and so on. So every country has to, is facing this change. And you know, the the change um, is always gonna be difficult to handle and it seems to be particularly badly handled in the United States. Um, I think China has done very well. I mean, you um, embraced a form of um, markets, a form of capitalism, which has generated enormous amount of wealth and relieved a lot of poverty. But there are really dangers there too, because capitalism can get out of hand. And David had said, you know, Chinese markets are very competitive. You've got to keep them that way, because they're real dangers. Of people who get very rich, undermining a competitive system, and a lot of that seems to happen in the U.S.
0: Could I follow up on a question that Henry asked a, a few minutes ago uh, about the causes of this this evolution? I mean, as I see it, there are three major ideas that are out there. One is that it's globalization. You know, let's let's blame Mexico, or then let's blame China. Let's. You know, it's, it's competition in the labor market and that's having a negative effect. Uh, an, another idea is that it's domestic policy changes. Uh, and I, I, I noticed there's a quote in, in your book where it says, rent seeking is a major cause of wage stagnation among working class Americans and has much to do with the deaths of despair. I'd like you to elaborate on that and for our non-economists in the audience explain what you mean by by, by rent seeking. And the third explanation is that it's just technolog- technological change and automation and there's nothing we can do about it. So it could be a mix of those things, but I'd like to know what what you think the majority of the cause is. Well, I
3: think that, you know, let's take globalization and technical change off the table because they're there. They're very important. All countries are facing them on one side or the other, right? Um, but you're not getting the deaths of despair in most of Europe that you get in the United States. So, um, and maybe if your audience say a few words about rent-seeking. So, you know, rent-seeking is when a business, basically, what businesses should be doing is making stuff and selling stuff and getting rich from doing that and innovating and making us all better off. That's a wonderful thing. That's what capitalism is really good at, what markets are really good at. But you know, there's another way that people can make money which is can, they can go to the government and get some special rule or regulation passed, which makes them rich at the expense of everybody else. And that's rent-seeking right? And that is unproductive, it's capitalism that's worse. And the real danger in the story we're telling is that in many industries and healthcare among them, you know, they've been very good at getting special regulations passed which protect them from competitive markets so that they can get rich at the expense of everybody else. And the story we tell, which some people agree with and some people don't, is that in addition to the automation and globalization that's threatening the jobs of many working class people in America, we've got this rent seeking. Um, by the healthcare sector largely, which is twice as large as anywhere else in the world. I mean, China had said 5% of GDP, we're spending 20%, median in Europe is like 10%. And they all have better life expectancy than we do. So this industry is not producing more, not producing more health. We have the worst health of any rich country in the world. And yet the executives, the hospitals, you know, the, the device manufacturers, especially the pharma companies, are making enormous sums of the money. And the trouble is that that money can be used for further rent seeking. So we, we've got, you know, an administration right now that's trying very hard to undo some of these things. You know, Janet Yellen is a good friend of ours. She's studied our book. She's worked with our book. C.C. Rouse was our boss at Princeton. She knows all about our book. She's head of the chairman. She's chairman of the council, you Economic advise it. They all know about this, but it looks like they can't take on the healthcare.
1: And the hard part about the healthcare industry is that uh, we don't think that this is a sector where you want the free market to work. I mean, Ken Arrow, who, was, who actually proved Adam Smith's theorems about how a market can work and work well, when Ken Arrow stared at the healthcare sector, he said, you know, the assumptions that are needed for this to be a market that work, works well, that is, um, uh, I'm sorry, we're having a small. Um, um, no problem. Yep.
2: no problem.
1: Done. Um, the that, that is not going to work well so it's not so this is an industry that we we don't want to pretend can work well as a free market this is an industry in which there's going to have to be um, the government uh, to help organize what happens within that industry um, so I mean it's a it's a big it's a, we, we think that the healthcare industry, you have to set aside differently from, for example, hairdressers, where in the state that I live in, you need a license in order to cut someone else's hair, right? So that's going to protect the people who were able to get a license and it's going to drive up prices. And it's not just people who cut hair, it's people who do a lot of other things are protected in a way that keeps some people out. But the healthcare sector is a little bit different.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think we 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 understand the benefits of markets and we're not anti-market, any capacity at all. And China seems like you know, leading example of that. I mean, China really began to get rich when they deregulated markets or deregulated agricultural markets, and you know, in, in one famous phrase unleashed the slumbering dynamism of the peasants <laughs> you got this enormous yeah, up yeah. um, We're all in favor of that. But you know, you need a muscular government to regulate the abuses that will happen if you don't.
2: Yeah, I, I think you have just said something very profound there, you know? <laughs> exactly. I mean, if you have spent 20% on the health care, uh, uh, but also China spent the five, 6% or other, uh, uh, you know, we, if we if we can really, uh, uh, really, as you said, have a really g- a government to uh, play a more active role in, in terms of those uh, uh, public goods areas, so that uh, we we don't have this kind of, uh, uh, you know, the, rely on the on the on the uh, monopoly, or maybe it's not deregulated, so that we we would have a lot of uh, challenges for for getting a, a better service for, for, for the patient. I mean, in your book, actually, uh, you know, the the, the capitalism, the, uh, uh, the the future of the uh, of the of the uh, uh, capitalism. Uh, uh, so there's a, there's a different form of, of of capitalism. You know, there's uh, uh, casino capitalism, rental capitalism, corning capitalism, ring capitalism, democratic capitalism, state capitalism, and uh, the list go on. And uh, but but the government, of course, plays some role. So. What what is the ideal form of, of capitalism? We I mean, know capitalism is if we if we if we really uh, practice well. I mean, with with caution, with uh, with uh, regulation, with with uh, with the government uh, involvement, probably China is is trying to do that. You know, we have a market economy. of uh, sixty private sectors. We have another uh, 10, 15 percent, uh, uh, you know, multinationals, and and then there's a twenty percent of SOEs. So. What is the best form of, of uh, capitalism and uh, how that can be, uh, you know, work well with the government and then serve the people well at the same time?
3: Well, the, you know, the struggle of people to make money is a very powerful force. You know, what some people just call greed, right? But you have to channel it in ways that are socially productive. And there's always danger there and there'll be danger in China too because people are very good at that, very good at innovation is a big part of the story too. My friend Philip has just written a book about creative destruction. That's another thing that capitalism is very good at. It comes along as new ideas and these new ideas push aside old ideas and old people were, you know, previous people were making a lot of money, lose money. So there's a lot of this churn going on. But the danger is that people who go powerful from one set of innovations or from one thing will try to stop you know, the next round of innovation going on. And that's not something that's just to do with America or to do with China or to do with England or whatever. That's always gonna happen. And it's always a danger in any system that the people who do very well at one round are gonna stop the people at the next round from doing things well. I mean, you know, there are famous Chinese stories. I mean, I I won't be able to pronounce the words, but Admiral Hay, you know, who had this enormous fleet of ships that were the greatest ships in the world that make the Mayflower look like an insect, you know, and they sailed all the way to East Africa and saw it. And when they came home, the emperor just put the ships away and said, you're never gonna sell it and use those ships again. So there was this potential innovation in what, the 15th century? I mean, it's before Columbus came to America. Um, and it was chunked off because people in power were scared of it. You know, and that is what we see in America all the time. You know, new innovations are choked off because the previous people don't want to see them. So you've got to let, capitalism really has to, you've got to get markets to work for the people and not work for the capitalists. Part,
1: Part of that is going to be, if you want this to continue, if you want this to evolve, as there is creative destruction, there are going to be people who lose, right? those people have to, in a sense, be brought along as well. Um, uh, If you want this to be able to evolve peacefully, which means a safety net for the people who lost when there was this kind of innovation taking place. And I think one of the things that happened in the US was that there's real pushback against helping people who lost uh, when there was globalization or when there was uh, innovation, that you're on your own, um, oh, well, something happened, your good job disappeared, you know, tough luck. And I think that you, you can do that, you can play the game that well way, but um, that's going to not give way to sort of a peaceful transition to a, a, a better economy. I think we, we have to think about uh, uh, social safety nets as part of running um, a, a market system well.
3: You've got to be able to do what David talked about before, which is you've got to have capitalism delivered low
0: prices, not high prices. And
2: Yeah, that's a good, one. so David, what, what, what's your uh, comment?
0: Yeah, I, I wanted to follow up with a couple of uh, specific questions that China is actually dealing with right now. When, when I was in graduate school, I went to graduate school in the late 70s, and the deregulation movement was in its heyday then. And people in antitrust policy were arguing that you really don't need an active antitrust policy, because the market will take care of that. And people argued that we, we can just deregulate the financial system, and you know, they can assess their own risk and that's no problem. Um, and, and China's uh, sort of assessing where to go with both those issues now. I, I wonder if you could talk about those issues and, and whether you think they were a major cause of what's happened in the US economy over the last 40 years. I think
3: they were right then, but wrong now, if you know what I mean. So it wasn't like that whole thing was crazy because regulations also generate a lot of rent-seeking. You know, I, I knew John, George Stiegler when I was young and George Stiegler was a great proponent of that, which is the regulators get captured by the regulators, by the, the people they're supposed to regulate, and then they both join together to exploit the people. So there was a lot to be said for that deregulation and it generated a lot of growth uh, in its time. But you know, the situation we're in now um, where I think there's widespread agreement. And again, this is one of these areas of permanent economics, but I think everybody thinks something has to be done with the big tech companies. Yeah. And that, you know, how you regulate those to, re- to retain the incredible benefits they've brought to us. And I think China's reg- struggling with that in exactly the same way. Those companies are very, very big, they're very powerful and they're bringing huge benefits
0: to us, but we're scared of them and we're scared of what they might do um, in the future. Let, uh, let me just note that those markets are, again, they're more competitive in China. I mean, Alibaba's uh, Taobao market is the equivalent of Amazon, but there are lots of competitors online in that for, for Alibaba in that market. There's Dong and uh, Pinguogo, they are a bunch of competitors or if you really have Amazon sort of by itself in the US.
3: Yeah, and I think right as I read that, I'm not an expert on China and you know better than I do, but my sense is the Chinese government has been very active yes. in preventing um, those big firms getting too large. And that's not been happening here. Um, you know, I actually am someone who thinks that I like Amazon so much that I think it'd be great if there were two or three of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm not sure that um, <laughs> the world needs Twitter and Facebook at all, but you know that's just my um, personal view. Um, and I think you know China has done well in those respects, and we need to do something here too.
1: But with the financial markets and whether or not they can assess their own risk and whether or not we can just let that roll forward without anyone without any oversight, I think we've seen, what that led to in the U.S., which is people lean out into the wind and if they fall over, the U.S. has come in uh, to shore them up because we can't let them uh, fail. Uh, So it's kind of heads we win, tails you lose. And that doesn't seem like a really successful way forward. So I, I think it's kind of naive to think that uh, that they're, that this is uh, um, an industry that can just um, manage that on their own. I don't know. Yeah. I guess my I agree. Agree. No,
3: I agree with that. I mean, but again, you know, the, what you talked about in the 70s wasn't entirely wrong. <laughs> and we got benefits from it, but it went too far. And, you know, these things sort of go through um, cycles. But, you know, this is something that's going to change. And I think both China and the U.S. and everywhere else are wrestling. I
0: I certainly believe the deregulation at the time. I want to quickly mention a conversation I had with a, a regional president of the Bank of America a few years ago, which just really struck with me. He said, one thing he said was, I don't want you as a customer. The main customer I want is somebody who bounces a few checks and pays a lot of fees every month. And then I asked him, what about lending to small businesses? And he said, we're really not interested in that either, unless we get <laughs> fees from them. So the traditional role of the banking system, which back in the 70s was lending to small businesses and homeowners, has been completely turned on its head. Uh, and a lot of them got into
3: hedge funds in a big way, too. So, you know, we're and it wasn't, a lot of the hedge funds are playing with their own money, but there were banks that got into that too. And basically we're doing it with our money. And that sort of thing I think was a real disaster too.
1: There's been, I, I think there there has been some progress made in trying to protect people from uh, things like your manager at the Bank of America just trying to see if they can trip people up and get great fees to be paid mm-hmm. right So there's been a so it's again a case where you can't just say let the market go and uh, it's going to take care of itself and you know everything is for the best in our Panglossian world uh, but we do need people in there to protect uh, the small the small people um, along the way. Without that, uh, we we end up in a real dystopia.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that uh, what we've been discussing is really interesting because because you know David mentioned the seventies we have we've gone through the deregulations and now probably the U.S. you know small is beautiful. I mean uh, the, the the government was really uh, uh, a small, small government, but now we see uh, all the government. I mean the Biden administration now is uh, is is is, uh, is 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 massive uh, uh, spending on. The, on the pandemic fighting 2.3 trillion on the infrastructure and the government is, uh, is also launching all kind of a uh, big uh, program. So that's what we also I know we see other countries do the same, you know, European countries too. So so China is actually, uh, you know, is it, probably striking a right balance. You know, we we have uh, the private sectors as very, very uh, active. We have multinational, we have SOE, which does all the uh, obligation of the, you know, lifted the poverty and maybe even subsidized from that, so so so. I mean, the world probably is learning how to how we can strike the right balance uh, while the capitalism is is thriving, but on the other hand, not get out of the hand, uh, get out of our control. So it's it's a new new challenge for all of us. But if we don't handle that well, I mean, if uh, you know there will be, there will be there will be a deglobalization, and then uh, we need uh, we need a scapegoat for that, and China is often. Uh, be, 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 be the scapegoat, uh, uh, for example. So, so I think you know, uh, we how can we really uh, strike that uh, that that balance is uh, is uh, is really uh, interesting for the economics to, to study. I guess.
3: Yeah, yeah, it certainly is. Um, these issues. I mean, one of the things that's happened in the U.S. is that the countervailing power of democracy has much weakened um, because the rent seekers, to a large extent, have taken over the government. It's not entirely true. But I mean, they, there used to be, if you go back to 1970, there was very little lobbying by firms in Washington. Yeah. Um, and that's exploded over the last 50 years. And I don't think it's coincidental that that's the period over which the profit share has gone up and the worker share has gone down. Now you have a much more muscular government that tends to be independent or more independent of industrial interests or of banking interests or, you know, whatever, I don't know. uh, um, Big tech is is kind of this industrial anymore. But, you know, and that separation is very important. And democracy is supposed to be able to do that. It's not been doing it very well in the United States uh, recently. A lot of people have been locked out of that. And that's not just in the United States. A lot of people in Europe, um, with the development of populist movements and so on, who who feel that they're not well represented by um, parliaments, which are dominated by people who have done well out of globalization, who are better educated than they are, and who have very little respect for their traditions or ways of life.
2: Yeah, so, so, uh, so uh, yeah, China is interesting. China has been learning, you know, China is running on the, on the consultative democracy and uh, has been really, attaches great uh, importance to the, to the well-being of the community, for example, if, in terms of fighting pandemic, even uh, maybe sacrifice a little bit of uh, individual freedom on that. Uh, so, so people follow the lockdown and then they, they get a free, uh, uh, more vibrant economy now. But what I, what I think China is a little bit, another uh, interesting thing is that China has over 2,000 counties, has, a, has a 260 cities, have, have a population above 1 million, and 30 province, 31 province city, many Spanish. They all compete with each other at, the, at, the, at all levels. So, so every mayor is like a, almost like a, it uh, carry a lot of a responsibility to, 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 to the well-being of, the, of its uh, citizens. so. So that that system, uh, you know, we, we are seeing China is trying to create some of that, and uh, uh, certainly um, uh, that's where I think the high economic growth comes from. But uh, but I but I, I, I hope that uh, you know the uh, the, uh, the the innovation China can catch up. I mean that that's where China is, is still uh, you know is relatively uh, uh, late comer on that. So 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 in terms of but but in terms of the. Uh, the globalization. I mean, uh, China has benefited enormously on that. This is the year of China joining WTO for the 20th year anniversary, and I, I think that uh, the global. What's your take on the globalization? You know, if uh, if China has been peacefully rising, how how China and the U.S. Uh, and EU and other countries can work together with a, with a better uh, economic perspective and prosperity, where where we can really work together on that.
3: Yeah, I agree. I I think. You know, we're in a really worrying situation and where, you know, there's a real danger of throwing out the baby with the bathwater sort of idea. And, you know, you swing away from complete deregulation to something where you you have this total regulation and a stifling of everything. And, you know, there's a lot of people in America who don't believe in capitalism in any form. anymore, and I don't think they're powerful enough to do huge damage, but they could be, and if other bad things happen. Um, so I think the populism in, in America, and you, know, you have a major political party that doesn't really believe in ballots anymore. You know, there's a big threat right there.
1: So I think that with globalization, the idea when you first study economics, what you're taught is that there are these gains from trade and so that's a good thing. And indeed what we've seen is the pie get bigger and bigger and bigger. But as the pie gets bigger and bigger and bigger, the question becomes, how does it get distributed? Who wins or who, who benefits from globalization? And in the US, too little was paid attention to that issue so that a few, a few people get very wealthy from this increase in the size of the pie that globalization brought. But a lot of people, their lives were damaged, You know, their communities were destroyed, their families saw no prospects for the future, and no one took care of that. So I think that if you need to make sure that things continue to work for the polity as a whole, and if you don't pay attention to that, if you don't tend that garden, then bad things can happen as we've seen happen in the U.S. now.
2: So, so maybe the issue then will be, will be, maybe each country should really look uh, uh, how to adjust domestically. Let's handle our domestic issue uh, with care, with, with, with innovation, with all the, all the new technology and, and new, new new plans. Uh, for example, I'm 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 pleased to see uh, uh, President Biden said he's going to I- revitalize the infrastructure of, of U.S., which I think also that is one of the factor in China. You know, uh, the infrastructure revolution going on. You know, anywhere go is a few hours a high-speed train, and uh, that also helps the uh, elevating poverty uh, uh, in China too. So, so if we all really concentrate on our domestic issues rather than we blame each other, maybe maybe that that is really the uh, the way to go, we, we hope that uh, we, we have a better, uh, uh, you know, communication and uh, uh, things like that uh, 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 to, 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 to really uh, have a more cooperative uh, 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 partnership, you know, I was talking to Graham Allison and uh, Joseph Nye and all those <laughs> Tom Friedman, they all said, you know, we should call co- cooperative, even if it's a rivalry, let's have a cooperative rivalry or rivalry partnership, rather than a, a, a geopolitical rivalry or strategic rivalry. One thing I, 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 I want to say is that I, I have this book, you know, it has been translated into Chinese. Uh, that understand the consumption, which is your your 2015 uh, Nobel laureate, uh, uh, you know, one of the themes was based on that. Consumption is is, is very important. I mean, uh, uh, very very, you know, China is want to be a, a consumer society. Companies stimulate consumption. There was even proposed to do circulation. Uh, domestic consumption is, is now emphasized. Uh, but also, um, we understand that uh, one of the things that also often China blamed is that China took away a lot of the uh, jobs. But we know that Walmart and all the others has purchased uh, so much uh, goods from China and uh, has helped kept the U.S. inflation low for the last several decades. I mean, uh, in the 80s, you know, U.S. inflation has gone up, but now in the last several years, on, only until recently, probably is getting higher. But you know, even though there could be a little. Uh, uh, some, some job lost, but maybe to technology, to robotics, uh, or to factory move to China. But, but also China's benefit also U.S. economy in terms of uh, uh, you know, buying you know, a trillion of the treasury bills, <laughs> financing the, the t bonds and, and, and now uh, uh, with the also low high quality uh, products. Uh, so what do you think of that? You know, that consumption pattern that you, you, we had all the uh, competitive advantage of each other. Should we uh, really have a more peaceful uh, narrative on that rather than Trump said, oh, China's ripped us off and uh, uh, what's the the real explanation for that?
3: This is, I'm I'm not quite sure I got the question, but um, there's this sense of um, what consumption is still too low in China
2: relative to, no, what I'm saying, there's two questions. The consumption, of course, we, 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 we are actually stimulated by your theory. where We are stimulating the consumption now in China. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. We, we, we encourage more consumption. The other thing is that uh, you know, the U.S. consumption a lot are now rely on China because China has kept the U.S. inflation low with a lot of low quality, no uh, price, good quality products. But, but China often blamed for that, you know, <laughs> is that- uh... Uh, no, I don't
3: think China's to blame for that. But That's, you know, that's certainly a good thing, a help to Americans. And I I had not encountered that line of thought that, uh, you know, China's to blame for America's high consumption habits. But um, I presume that in China, there are a number of policies to help people spend more. Um, you know, I've always argued that, um, you know, if, if people in China had more children, they'd have more things to spend money on. That's <laughs> a very good thing to spend money on. Also, healthcare is very important there because if people save up because they're worried about big expenses for healthcare, that's another reason. The other thing that you probably don't want to hear is that uh, you, and there's a very strong relationship, which economists, I don't think, fully understand, that uh, very high-growing societies tend to have very high savings rates. And so, you know, if China were growing less rapidly, (laughs) then you would probably have more consumption. That's probably something that, not a policy direction that um, you want to go in. But I mean, a lot of the reasons people save are are for the future or for to protect themselves in old age. Um, And again, that's something where if if elders, you know, find themselves without children to look after them in their old age, they're gonna have to save a lot of money to, um, you know, to protect themselves in those times. So I think those things are all changing in China. But I I noticed your recent census is showing that population growth has almost stopped or is about to stop in China. And I think it would be good if there were more children in China. Um, I think it'd be good if there were more children here too. Um, But I think, you know, more children is a good healthy sign of, um, you know, people thinking the future is good.
0: Could I add one point to the consumption? Yeah, yes. guess, one thing to realize is the difference in the growth in, re- in wage rates. Uh, after the G reforms around 2000 in China, wages grew at 9% real per year for 15 years. Right. And for the past five years, I don't know about the pandemic here, but uh, from 2015 to 2019, they were growing at 5 or 6%. Well, it's easy to boost consumption and and savings when your wages are increasing so fast. These are median real wages, Uh, but we're seeing the buildup of debt in the US to boost consumption, which I think is a very bad path to follow. Uh, That's just my point. I wonder if you have thought about the distinction between wage-driven, consumption and debt-driven consumption.
3: No, I think the point I was just wanted to make is that um, I didn't know about those wage growths, but when wages are growing very, very fast, consumption tends not to catch up yeah. for quite a long time. So people stick with the consumption patterns they have and they don't adapt as quickly as they might. And the, you know, if you get the growth long enough or the growth begins to come down, then the consumption rate um, will certainly go up. Um, people in there's one of the effects of the pandemic has been a big reduction in consumer debt um, because people are using um, some of the payments they've got from the government to pay off their credit cards. Um, and it's also true that many people don't have a lot of our friends say, I wish it were over so I could spend some money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know, the, the things that people spend a lot of money on, like eating out or traveling or flying or tourism. Um, those things have taken a big hit. So there's actually been a big decrease in consumption in the U.S. Um, during the pandemic. So if that was a problem before, it's less of a problem now.
2: Yeah, no, I think that absolutely, uh, the, the, the pandemic actually cut down the, the uh, uh, some consumptions, for example, tourism, which uh, uh, counts 10% of global GDP. I mean, every year China has 100, 150 million people outbound tourists and right. uh, that's not happening so we hope that once the pandemic is under control we hope the beijing uh, the tokyo olympic is is happening and the beijing winter olympic is happening we can revive this uh, with the virus and uh, vaccine that uh, we can revive the tourism uh, consumption spending uh,
3: we'll, so be we, able to have the, we'll be able to have this conversation in person so, that's right so. Yeah,
2: we'd love to uh, invite you to come to uh, ccg uh, next time when you when you when we can start travel, but we almost come to the end. But uh, but we have actually we collected some uh, questions uh, from uh, from the media. Actually, they they, they know that you are you are talking to us, and then they actually prepared some questions. Uh, one question is from South China Morning Post. It says that uh, according to the data from China's latest census, an aging population appears to be a prime concern for the world's second largest economy, and the mounting worries that uh, competition for Use among the Chinese cities will escalate. Do you see as a uh, this is any factor that could widen or narrow the wealth gap in China? Uh, that, that's from yeah.
3: yeah. That's hard to tell without uh,
1: more data. Yeah, without yeah. knowing the data better, that's a really hard question to answer. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a good question. But
3: these uh, uh, structural things are very important in a whole area of economics and tend to be a little bit
2: understudied. But yes. Mm-hmm, great, yeah, yeah, and uh, certainly uh, uh, technology. Probably, you know, that uh, with the with the uh, the uh, uh, that artificial intelligence or uh, or, or those uh, uh, automation that really probably, you know, if people not 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 uh, you know knowledgeable on those things it would maybe affecting that. Another question would be from China Business Network. He uh, says, "Would uh, a wealthy tax?" helping combat the gap between rich and poor. Uh, are those policies introduced by the Biden administration uh, indication in the year of the big government is back uh, in the United States? Also, President Biden is, uh, is uh, raising the minimum wages, but also proposing a flat tax for, for, for the global operations. So what do you think of that? Well, I
3: think it's really time that um you know, large corporations like Amazon and FedEx actually paid any tax, Uh, and I think that's certainly one of the things that fuels populism, is this feeling that the people at the really top, especially through corporations, are not paying very much tax, and I'm certainly very much in favor of international negotiations to set a minimum corporation tax, for example, so that you don't get this enormous distortion of companies moving around and pretending to be headquartered in Ireland or in the Cayman Islands um, in order to avoid taxes. I mean, that's a problem you've got much less than we do. And I think that's been very corrosive. Um, it's been hard for the government to collect taxes, which it needs to do things. Um, and it's also seen as manifestly unfair and contributes to populism, and we need less of that.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have a we have another question from China Radio International. Uh, many people talk down capitalism. Uh, French President Emmanuel Macron said during the virtual Davos Agenda 2021 summit of global leaders that modern capitalism can no longer work. So, what what's your opinion about, about that, and uh, and how we can really compare the? Uh, you know the, the the future global governance uh, if you know relate to the to the capitalism in future I mean which is your purpose? Well, I think
3: what what Macron is saying is that you know it doesn't work in the way it's working right now and I think those are the issues we've talked about which is rent seeking and all the rest of it and we need a strong government that will be a countervailing force on behalf of ordinary people um, for the excesses of the, of capitalism, not to abolish it. And it's very hard to know what abolishing it would mean. Mm-hmm.
2: So so uh, again, I, I, this is really a fascinating discussion. We, by, My staff was telling me we had about uh, uh, 700, 800,000 people watching this actually. So it's really amazing and uh, yeah, very attractive. And uh, so, so w- what I would say is that we had a very interesting discussion and I think that uh, uh, U.S. China uh, are really uh, two largest economy. U.S. being the biggest uh, economy, and China is the second largest. Well, we a lot of things to learn from each other, and uh, 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 of course, the, the, the books that you have, the, the, the theory that we propose, very interesting. You know, related education, you know, healthcare, and uh, you know, also uh, the, uh, the, uh, the 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 uh, capitalism, <laughs> what what format that we can can really do well. Equality, you know, that's really uh, so, uh, so important. Uh, China has to be aware of that too, even though China has lifted 800 million people of extreme poverty, uh, you know, the, the, the China just the latest population <laughs> census, uh, Population is aging and what, what to be prevented. So you have offered a lot of valuable uh, lessons and advice for us. So, so to conclude, maybe, maybe you can, uh, uh, all of you can uh, each say a few words to, to our audience, uh, still watching us, and uh, uh, for, the, for, for this uh, discussion, what, what can, you know, the two countries that we can work together and maybe have a better future together rather than, you know, uh, we, we, we repeat the, the lessons uh, uh, that uh, we don't, you know, learn experience from each other.
1: I think you're exactly right. I think we need to look at the parts where, which, are, which are good and not throw those away. We need to work to, um, uh, to build on the successes. Uh, but I think a lot of the problems with uh, globalization going as far as it has is a domestic problem about how we take the benefits of globalization and distribute them locally. Uh, within our own countries. And if we, if, if, we, if we focused on that, I think we could make quite a lot of progress. Yeah, I
3: think that's the big message um, in the last five or 10 years, which is that countries need to put their own domestic house in order and not blame outsiders <laughs> for what that's happening. And if they don't put their domestic house in order you know, if they don't look after the people who've been left behind, and that's a domestic issue, it's a policy issue, it's something that governments have to be able to do, then they run the risk of terrible things happening domestically, but also really bad things happening internationally. Because if those people, you know, are allowed, bad things are allowed to happen and they're seen as being exploited, then they will look for scapegoats and they will blame anyone who happens to be around, you know, whether it's China or automation or artificial intelligence or whatever. So we think that addressing, you know, if you have a large fraction of your population whose life expectancy is falling, you know, really bad things are happening, that's a domestic problem. We've got to fix that, because otherwise America can't really participate in the world.
2: Yeah, that's, that's very, very, uh, very stimulating, uh, very sound advice. I, I agree, it's not only true for, for US, but also true for China, for many other countries. We've got to take care of our own, own people and we have to do our own uh, domestic uh, uh, politics well because the, these days, it, domestic politics is not doing well, it can affect international politics too. So, so we have to concentrate on domestic issues and handle our own situation well. That, that's absolutely a very sound advice for, for all of us. So, David, your, your your last word.
0: I thought this this has been a very great conversation. I w- wish we could go on for a few more hours. I have tons of questions to ask you, but uh, you, you mentioned when we first talked that you had some ideas about how the pandemic has affected deaths from despair, and I didn't. I want to just give you a chance to mention a little bit of that before we leave.
3: Well, we've just been looking at the pattern of deaths, which has been hard to get data on. The, the stunning thing is that. Um, the people, the, the people who've been suffering worse, are the same people who were suffering before. Um, and you know, it's not obvious that that would happen because the causes of death have changed. You know, it, it didn't used to be risky to work in a grocery store, and now it is risky to work in a grocery store. But the sort of protection that you get from a bachelor's degree is, seems to be as strong against the pandemic. As it was before, so one of the things, the ways I like to put it is, um, having a BA, if if you're um, a white non-Hispanic in America, having a BA is about as protective as the Johnson Johnson vaccine. Mm-hmm. It's about seventy-five percent effective. Um, and you know who knew? And of course, we know so why it's happening that you know, those of us with VAs are all staying at home, we kept our jobs, nothing bad happened to us. But, you know, it's always the same people who benefit and the same people who lose. So the pandemic has not really changed that pattern.
0: Great. I think you're dealing with an issue that's one of the most important issues facing the United States and maybe the rest of the world. And I, I really appreciate your, your contribution to to this. Well,
3: thank you. And thank you, too, for giving us this amazing audience. Yeah. Um, it's just wonderful.
2: Thank you. Yeah, yeah, thank you, uh, uh, Professor Deaton and P- Professor Case. It's such a fascinating discussion we have. And uh, I really appreciate uh, your advice at the end and uh, I know throughout the, 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 the conversation, that the theory and the, the examples you give him and the concrete sectors you look after uh, to, to deliberate de- de- all those, uh, all those uh, you know, uh, theory that actually, Applicable to, to, to many situations, including uh, uh, you know, U.S. not only U.S. but also China as well. Education, you know, health, uh, solved inequality, and also concentrate on the domestic issues and do it well. <laughs> so that's great and uh, great great stuff. So once again, uh, on behalf of CCG, we yeah. want to thank you so much, and also we want to thank our audience who tuned in on this uh, great discussion across. Uh, Uh, Pacific, I mean, virtually, I know, uh, we know that you are in in Princeton so early in the morning. Once again, thank you so much. We hope to see you again in Beijing. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much.
2: Thank you to all our friends in China. Thank you. Thank you. Great, great. Thank you. Thank you, Martin. You said something very profound there. We're we are all human beings. We are, we are all living in the same planet. We, we are all global villagers. We need to look for a, a better future and also manage our differences and coexist peacefully and strive for the better future. Thank you so much for, for taking time talking to us. Thank you very much, Martin. Yeah. Appreciate great it. Great pleasure. Thank you. Great. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you all for, for our audience as well. Thank you.